This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Chris Townsend with you here on A's Cast, and we're doing our very first Green and Gold History with a guy that knows everything about the history of the Oakland Athletics. He played a big part in the history of this organization, winning two world titles, two gold gloves, two all-star games. The great Ray Fossey is with us here. Foss, uh, this is what year? 49 for you, spring training? Uh, I, yes, and I'm very proud of that. You know, maybe people would say, you know, that's a long time, time to leave. No, the game of baseball is, is tremendous. And uh, I played 15 years professionally, and then I've been broadcasting. This is my 34th season, so you do the math, and uh, a lot of spring trainings. But they never get old, Chris. And the great thing about baseball, as I've always said, there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. And in the game of baseball, everything is different. Everybody's different. And when spring training, it starts – everything for for teams and players to get ready and disappointments when players don't make the team but the excitement of young players getting an opportunity to play and um, you know as a player I, I remember one time I did I was behind the plate and little did I know uh, that the hitter who was at the plate was going to be sent down uh, or the pitcher was and so I told the hitter what was coming I said because it was going to extra innings and I said let's get out of here you know those those are the things you can do in spring training and as it turned out the pitcher grooved a fastball and guy got a base hit game over he gone you know to the minor leagues but I mean there's a lot of things that can happen and uh, the, the great thing about spring training if you're a veteran you know what you have to do to get ready uh, statistics mean nothing because when the season begins, it's 0-0. And I remember the late Bob Wilson on like a 31 ERA, won the Cy Young Award. So if you're a veteran, you're getting ready. If you're a young player, you're hoping to make the team. Uh, but like I said, a lot of disappointments because there are players who come to spring training hoping to make the team. They don't. They're sent to AAA. That's where it's disappointing. I think about your life in baseball. and Basically, coming out of high school, you've been in Major League Baseball. have been around Major League Baseball since you came out of high school. So you've seen so many different springs, and I and I think you're dead right. You know, spring training is not the same for everybody. Some guys need to make the club. Some guys just need to work on stuff. So it really depends on who you are and your stature with the team. Absolutely, and, and I think that's what makes it enjoyable if you're a veteran. Um, I, I know that... I, I was in spring training with the Cleveland Indians when we trained down to High Corbett Field. And uh, Leo DeRocher was the manager of the Cubs. And I was I was hitting in the in the ninth inning. And I'll never forget. I knew I was going to AAA. And I'll never forget. He yelled over at Alan Dark, put in a pinch hitter. I want to get this over with. You know? And I said, okay. So I hit a double. And I said, take that, Mr. DeRocher, because I know I was going to AAA. But, but those are things that you know. But now, fast forward where I was with the ball club, I had played a couple of years, or even the first year in, in Major League Baseball, there's a different mindset when you go to spring training. And uh, the, the Gaylord Perry, catching him when he was traded to the Indians in 72, I mean, a great spring training story because everybody thought he threw this this pitch, you know? He did, because <laughs> he wrote a book about it called Me and the Spitter, but I was warming him up on High Corbett Field, and the, the photographer said, Go to the mound like you're visiting Gaylord during the game. And so when I went out there, he said, partner, let me show you where I, I put it just in case they ask. So the, the, the guy's taking the pictures, and I'm out on the mound, and Gaylord's showing me the reach signal circle on the baseball. He said, that's where it's going to be all the time. But I only say that because he, he wrote a book, and uh, uh, he, he was a great pitcher regardless of what he did. But little things like that happen in spring training nobody know, knows about, 
but it's a great time. And especially if you know you're there just to get your work in as a veteran, knowing you are going to make the club. You know, it doesn't matter if you go zero for 20 or 30 or 40, or if you have a 31 ERA like the late Bob Wells did, you know you've made the team, and it's just a matter of getting your work in. So when you handled the ball from Gaylord Perry, what did it feel like when you're throwing it back to him? It was slippery. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was great because, I mean, it, it, I've had so many of the stories. But, but as Gaylord said, um, until my arm really gets in shape and I'm throwing a good fastball, it's not going to work that well, but I still have to work on it. And, and again, that's spring training. He, he knew he was getting ready, but uh, Greg Nettles had his tough time at third base because he'd have to twist the baseball to make sure he's on the dry side before, yeah. before he threw it to first base. But, you know, so many so many things happen in the spring, and uh, I, I think whether it's it's a high corporate field where there's no baseball now down in Tucson, but that was my first spring training, and I, I remember Louis Tiant, um there, there was a high Corbett field, which is still there, and then there are four fields on the backside where the minor leaguers train. And I remember starting pitchers. It's like going for a side session. You go to the backfields, and, and, and Louis Tian called it Iwo Jima because he said, I don't like going back there because those minor league hitters, are, you know, you can't set them up because they see ball hit ball. And he said, I, I don't go back over there no more. So Tian made one appearance at High Corbett Field in the backfield. He said that was it. But, you know, those are, again, the things that you do in spring training. And it's, uh, it's a fun time, especially if you know you have a club mate. So you've been in Arizona, you and your family, for many years also in, in the Bay Area. Is it interesting to you how you've seen such change from teams moving from Florida out here to Arizona? What, we have 15 teams here now? 15 in the Valley of the Sun in Arizona, 15 in the Grapefruit League, and it is a competition. And I think the biggest change in spring training over the years that I've seen is that it's competition baseball, number one, but it's also – I remember, Chris, at a time when if you could go to spring training as a team to break even – Financially, that means you could draw enough people to pay your expenses, to pay the travel, you know, whatever it might be, and then start the season. Now you see the ticket prices, you see the concessions. It's a moneymaker for these teams and, and more power to them because they have all the players in camp getting ready. But I, I think that's the biggest thing where the, the facilities are great. I mean, for the A's moving from uh, Phoenix Municipal Stadium, there was no, uh, well, they had a small backfield, but they had no chance for a burn because of Van Buren. So they moved to Hohokam and where the Cubs were, the Cubs get a brand new stadium because their owner threatened to go to Florida, said, well, no, we can't do that, so we'll build them a new stadium. You think about the, what, $100 million where they put in a stadium for six weeks of spring training, but that's the competition between the two leagues. I think when the Dodgers moved from Vero Beach to the west side of, of Arizona uh, in Glendale, I think that said it all, because if the Dodgers, who are at Vero Beach in Florida forever as the Brooklyn Dodgers, Los Angeles Dodgers, but I think from their standpoint, now that they're in Arizona, closer to Los Angeles, they have a chance for the fans to come over and watch them during spring training. Same with the Padres. And if, Chris, if you think about the, the 10 teams in the American and National League West, nine of those train in Arizona. Only one, the Houston Astros, are in Florida. Everybody else is in the Valley of the Sun, which, you know, it's great because you get a chance to see the teams you're going to be seeing a lot during the season. And that's why I think the Mariners are the first team with Felix Hernandez, who, when he was going to be facing a team from the American League West, 
he went to the minor leagues and pitched against some team down there, maybe his own team, so he would not show what he might be throwing during the season. Everybody knows everything, so what's the big deal? But you can see where there's kind of this copycat where teams now do that. If, if let's say, the Angels don't want a pitcher to see of the A's, who they're going to see 19 times, they won't face him during spring training. But, but it has become so different over the years. Uh, one time, Chris, the... Mandatory reporting date was March 1st. Could not play a game till March 10th because we used the 10 days to get in shape. Now, the A's reported February 10th. Their first game was February 21st. And I'm thinking, we didn't even have to be here till then. But we worked in the offseason, and, and guys don't have to do that now. So that's why spring training is, is a great time because uh, you, you get a chance to get ready for the season. And again, now versus back when I played, if you don't come into camp ready to play right now, you're lost because you're either a pitcher pitching or a position player getting ready. You don't have a lot of time in spring training. And when you show up, if you're not geared to play now, your bats may not be quality because the pitchers are so far ahead. But still, you're ready to play. And if you're not ready to play, you're going to be out of a job. And I think that's one of the biggest differences going on now in addition to the fact that it's a big moneymaker. You're listening to A's cast, Green and Gold History, with Ray Fossey and Chris Townsend. And Foss, when do you think it was where, when Arizona really, really realized that spring training can be big business? Like, when did that happen? Oh, I would say probably maybe the last 10 years uh, prior to that. And, and I remember when I trained with the Indians in Tucson, it, it was just taking a bus trip. We could play three consecutive games in the Phoenix area from Tucson. We'd take three trips. We never stayed up here. Now teams, well, of course, everybody's in the Valley and, and the short trip. You're looking at now with uh, Goodyear farthest west, Mesa farthest east. You're looking at max maybe an hour, surprise. So in Florida, Vince Catronio, all his kids say, if you're a veteran, it's you're more than three bridges, you don't have to go. <laughs> you know, Like the three bridge rule for a veteran player. But uh, I, I think what's great about uh, Arizona, and I've been blessed to have always been in Arizona as a, either a player or a broadcaster, is that the shortness of the trips. In Florida, you can't work out at home and take a bus over an hour before the game and get ready for the game. You have to get on the bus travel, take your batting practice. And the same way when I played in Tucson, we'd come up here and we'd take batting practice. Or if teams came to Tucson, they'd take batting practice. Now it's so convenient to do all your work in your home park, get on your bus after having a lunch and go play the game and then come back and dress, you know, and that's it. But but I think the last 10 years, it's really kind of, kind of been to the point that you have people traveling um, or spring training tours that come from the Bay Area down to Arizona where people, 40 or 50, get on a plane and come down and there's a trip all arranged for them for the weekend to watch spring training baseball. And the thing that I've always said, that if you've never been to Arizona in spring training, that if you come once, you'll always come back again because you see how great it is. The The parks are so close. Um, you can get autographs. Um uh, it's not like at the during during the season where the the stands are so far back. Everybody's so close. Everything is so close, almost to a detriment. Uh, if the players are so close to the to the batter, as uh, Matt Keel found out when when Arizona. I mean, he almost died, unfortunately, but fortunately it happened over in Scottsdale where the hospital was closed after he got hit in a line drive, got hit in the head. So, um, you know, that was one of the scariest things that happened. But, Chris, I think if, if you can come down here now and watch spring training baseball and you could see 
the fields the way they are and and really the cost of tickets and concessions it's almost like baseball major league baseball starting earlier except that you have a bunch of players getting ready to start the season yeah it's kind of crazy the way it used to be i mean you even had teams down in yuma yes well there was the padres were in yuma and the angels were in palm springs and the great thing about spring training was that if you were one of the other teams playing in the valley you would take a three-day trip. You'd either play two in Yuma and one in, in Palm Springs or vice versa. But it was like a three-day trip. and was like, oh, wow, you get to get out of Arizona mm-hmm. or at least the Valley to go someplace to play. And it wasn't a matter of a road trip. It's just, it was just breaking up kind of the monotony of going to the park every day and working out and playing games. But uh, when the White Sox were in, uh, when Tucson had the White Sox, the Diamondbacks, and the Indians, uh, no, not the Indians, but... Um, there were three teams, the Rockies, that's it. The Rockies, the Diamondbacks, and the, and the White Sox were in Tucson. But I heard the story that Jerry Reinsdorf, who owns the White Sox, has a home in Paradise Valley on the west side of Phoenix, said, I don't want to drive down there. So they moved up here to Glendale. That's where the Dodgers moved. And then the Talking Stick Resort, uh, they decided to build a, a turnkey stadium for the Rockies and the Diamondbacks, and now everybody's in the Valley. So it, it makes a huge difference as far as uh, uh, the teams that are up here. And, and you know, I heard this today, a couple of days ago, that you know the attendance in spring training total about a million seven, million eight in spring training, and they averaging. And remember that most stadiums only hold about ten thousand. So you start averaging six, seven thousand people per game, and then you have some of the uh, the double headers where maybe you play a night game, so fans can watch a day game or watch a night game. Scouts love it because they can see a lot of the players. So it, it has changed, and, and I've been fortunate to see all these and see it at the beginning when actually I show up in spring training out of shape, <laughs> and then Vince Catroni asked me because uh, I heard that Marcel Osuna showed up 22 pounds overweight, and and Vince asked me, he says, did you ever put on that sauna suit? You know where you can put a suit on and just sweat and lose weight. I said, yeah, I did it one time, lost 10 pounds, about 30 minutes. I said, I'll never do it again. I'll get in shape before I come to spring training. But there's a lot. there are a lot of things that you learn over the number of years that I've been involved in. And I think uh, uh, it's, it's, it's fun to watch how the teams come in and prepare for a season. I mean, it's work. Coaching staff, they never see their families because they're out early. They spend all day, and especially once the game starts. So once the season begins, it's like a break for the coaching staff because now they can sleep in if they know how, remember how, because in spring training you don't get to. But at least during the season, you have that change to where it becomes more night games, the day games occasionally during the week or on the weekends, and that's about it. Yeah, as we're recording this, we're going to leave for Japan tomorrow. And I didn't have a room, and I was calling around. I can tell you, all the hotels are slammed. I luckily found one, but yeah, that's just—it's so busy down here because there's still, you know, they're in the middle of spring training for these other teams. Obviously, we're being sped up. But when you think back to your days with the A's, and they had just won the World Series. You're showing up. What was spring training like for a team that the expectation was to win the World Series? Well, I'm going to take you back to 1973 when I was still with the Cleveland Indians. The A's had already won the World Series in 72. I was playing for the Indians. I caught Gaylord Perry in 72. He wins the Cy Young Award, winning 24-16 and 16 with a sub-three earned run average. Just a phenomenal season. Last thing I thought, I was going to be traded. Ten days to go in spring training in 73. I'm traded to the Oakland A's. I was in Tucson. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I were riding, driving around. It's an off day. John Lornstein was the neighbor in the apartment where we were staying. Get back to the apartment. There's a note on my door saying, 
go see Phil Segge down at High Corbett. So I drove down. He said, been traded to, to Oakland. I drove up, and um, I was told to come up to, to Mesa at Rendezvous Park, where, where the Indian, uh, A's were training at the time, and I was told to come up to take pictures for the yearbook. And I got to Mesa, and Dick Williams said, pictures, my you-know-what. You got 10 days to learn his pitching staff. You're catching today. And I caught Catfish Hunter. Tony, I'll never forget, I had been catching pitchers who I hoped would be good. Catfish was great. Obviously, 20-game winner consistently, Cy Young Award winner, Hall of Famer. My first game that I caught in spring training for the Oakland Athletics was Catfish Hunter. He faced 15 batters, 15 of the easiest outs I've ever seen in my life. I didn't break a sweat towards the end of spring training. And I went, wow, this is great. And I was in 143 games that, that season. But I remember being around the batting cage. And Dick Green, great second baseman for the A's was standing there, and, and here I'm coming from a team that destined to be in last place on opening day. I mean, it's got no chance. To, <laughs> not no chance, and I always kid to say, yeah, we're, we're in first place in spring training, but last place on opening day until the, you know, the end of the season. So all of a sudden I come to a world championship team, and I said to Dick Green, why is everybody so lackadaisical? Why are you just like you don't care? And he said, no, we're ready. We know we're going to win our division. We're going to play somebody from the East because at the time there were two divisions. And then we're going to win and go to the World Series and play somebody from the National League and be world champions. I went, what are you talking about? And it's exactly the way it panned out. We won the division, played the Orioles, played the Mets, world champions, and did it again in 74, three consecutive years. But, you know, to be traded from a team, and I'll be honest with you, I think there were two players during my era that never wanted to be traded from Cleveland, Dwayne Kuyper and me. We were both traded to West Coast teams. We both end up broadcasting, mm-hmm. and you know and that's it. But, you know, Tony, I grew up as as a as a Cardinal fan. I grew up as a baseball card collector, and I grew up at a time when there was no free agency, no movement. So if you signed with a team, you were with that team. My first trade to the Oakland A's, while it turned out to be great, because we're sitting here all these years later, and I'm still employed by the Athletics and being a part of the a, a great organization, but I never want to be traded, and it was heartbreaking. I mean. Gaylord Perry still, he would say, you traded our quarterback. How could you trade our quarterback? You know, because Gaylord came over from the Giants in 72. And he said, I don't know these guys. I'm going to depend on you. Well, talk about 40 starts and 40 decisions for a great pitcher. But to be honest and being traded, I was devastated, even though it worked out great. But when you're traded that first time, when you're told you've been traded. And again, there there was no free agency at the time. So I didn't have a choice. It was Cleveland trading me to the Oakland A's for Dave Duncan and Jack Heideman. Our Jack Heideman and I went to uh, Oakland for Dave Duncan and George Hendrick because Phil Segge said, if I trade Fossey for Duncan, I have to have a center fielder. And that's why George Hendrick went in the trade, which if you look in the annuals, the books, it will show it as the worst trade ever in the history of baseball. But there were a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes that people didn't know. And I went from hitting fourth and catching in Cleveland to hitting eighth and catching in Oakland because of guys like Campy and Billy North and 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 Sal and Joe Rudy and Reggie Jackson and Gene Tennis and on and on and on. I was happy just to be in that lineup to win a world championship. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, you're talking about Hall of Famers. You're yeah. talking about All-Stars. You're talking about world champions. And it's like one of the cool things, like Campy's been around this spring. Blue Moon's always around. And to see them rolling with Fergie Jenkins. And you're just – you look at these guys and their resumes, and their resumes have three 
three World Series rings. I mean, it's that group. Your group was so special, and it's just so sad because so many of those guys were in their prime. You could have kept that thing rolling for years. And you, and you know, in the history of baseball, and it's been a great history. Great history. Your grandfather played, and you, and you know the history of the game. There have only been two teams that have ever, ever won three consecutive championships, the New York Yankees and the Oakland Athletics. And when the Yankees, they almost had a chance to win four, but the Diamondbacks beat them in 0-1. They probably should have won four consecutive. But when they won five in a row, it was American League against the National League, and World Series was over probably October 10th or 12th. Whereas now, and, and even uh, when I played, we had the, the, the League Championship Series with five games and then the World Series. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, Tony, when you play a five-game League Championship Series to go to the World Series, that's more stressful than the World Series itself, which is the ultimate goal of every player. But if you think about it, you have to win three of five just to get to the World Series. And I remember our first game that we played against the Mets in 1973 after beating the Orioles in five games. I said, what's the big deal about the World Series? It was almost anticlimactic because just to get there was nerve-wracking. But uh, seven-game World Series in 73 World Champions again. But it was it was great to be a part of that team and then wanted to get in 74 against the Dodgers. And, I mean, just, just to think about what could have been, and you mentioned about in their prime, but you remember free agency came at the time. And different players. And, Charlie, I, I remember I had been traded back to Cleveland, and in 76 I'm sitting in Texas, and I look up on the board, and it said Charlie Finley has just traded Vita Blue, Ken, uh, Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers, and uh, Reggie Jackson. And I said, what? And Charlie knew free agency was coming. And, and to think about what could have been, and, and I asked Gene Tennis one time, how many world championships could the A's have won? He said, that's a great question because we had the nucleus of a team that could have continued to win and talk about being a dynasty. I mean, winning three in a row was great. Charlie Finley had always, I mean, he had the, the, the four-leaf clover already available, said, keep it alive in 75. But we lost Catfish Hunter. And that was kind of the demise of the ball club. And then free agency after 76. And next thing you know, all those great players on different teams. Yeah, you could be talking four, five, six championships. Because once again, all those guys were in their prime. And you just go look to what George Steinbrenner did. Yeah. He was smart. And he took winning ball players. He took Catfish. He right. took Reggie Jackson. And then they won World Series in New York. You know, and when Roger Clemens went to the Yankees, uh, he said, you know, the Yankees don't rebuild, they reload. And you think about that. And I think of what the Seattle Mariners did in 2018, winning 89 games. They pretty much, they're gone. They're all gone. And, and maybe thinking about the future. But but I, I think what Charlie had, and, and I give Charlie Finney a lot of credit because while he left Kansas City and probably the most hated man in, in Kansas City because, <laughs> because he, he kind of took the, the Kansas City Athletics to the Oakland Athletics who became three-time world champions, and they've never forgotten that. Uh, but but I, I think he was brilliant. Tony, I remember going to Dodger Stadium after Beat the Orioles were playing the Dodgers in the World Series. And I remember opening up a, a, like a, a World Series program. And here's the Dodgers showing their logo in about four pages that, you know, the small pictures of all their employees. Come to the Oakland Athletics, there's a picture of Charlie, Carolyn Kaufman, and that's it. <laughs> you know, that you know, like three people total for the Oakland Athletics. But but that's what Charlie was able to do. He didn't have a great scouting staff. He would call, let's say, he'd call you, hey, uh, Tony, what do you think about so-and-so? I think he's great. Next day he's on the team. 
because that's how he got information by calling various people, scouts and, and, and owners and general managers of other teams. And he put together really a great team based on the knowledge he had. And he called me whenever I was going for a $10,000 raise. He called me and he says, you'll win, you'll get your raise and win in the World Series. I, I said, can you guarantee that? He says, that just, you'll win the World Series. That was it. I mean, he went through arbitration cases. He was the main guy. And attorneys, he didn't have them. He, he was Charlie Finley. He just, Norm Kosalki would give him information. And Charlie was his, only, his own negotiator. And that's the way he did things. But there are not many owners that could put together a three-time world championship team and win five consecutive division championships. And uh, probably could have won more. But free agency came, and those guys went elsewhere. And he did it from the Midwest. He wasn't even in town. He did it from Chicago and Michigan Avenue. Because, ah. Tony, I remember we went in one time, and I was at Dick Green, Daryl Knows, Paul Limbett. Uh, the late Paul Inblad, and we're sitting in Charlie Finley's office. And he calls in Chicago. In Chicago, of course. Yeah, we're playing the White Sox. And he calls Bob Short, who was the owner of the uh, the Washington Centers. He said, "Hey, Bob, what do you think about Paul Limblad?" He says, "Charlie, you have you're on, I'm on speakerphone, and he's sitting in your office, isn't he?" And he started chuckling, laughing, because they knew what he was doing. But that's the way he was. He just, you know, speed dialed one of the owners and put him on speakerphone. But uh, He's a brilliant man. He was a brilliant man. We go to Chicago and play a Saturday day game, mandatory. Bus after the game, go to Laporte, Indiana, on the freeway, Charlie O. Fenley's farm. And you see a caboose there. And we'd have this big party, and if any of the wives were in town, they'd go in the same thing. But he had a basketball court. He had a lot of things, play games, do different things, have a barbecue, get back on the bus, go back to Chicago every time. But Charlie came to Oakland. When the A's won the postseason, that was pretty much it. <laughs> Otherwise, he was in Chicago. Monty Moore, great announcer, uh, before the Internet. I'd heard the story that Monty would call Charlie right before the game, say, hey, Charlie, about ready to start. He'd lay the phone down, and Charlie would listen to the game in Chicago via the telephone, Monty Moore doing play-by-play. And that's the way it was. But that's never happening again. It will never happen again because, first of all, the Internet, and you could you could follow it all, but that would never happen even after that. But that's the way Charlie kept up with the team. And uh, But it, it was it was fun because we won, and that's the biggest thing. And, and you think about from 72 to 73, 74, 89, four world championships in the 50-year anniversary, which we celebrated last year, that's pretty spectacular because there are a lot of teams would love to have that opportunity to win that many world championships. So the A's have been fortunate to have good teams, and the A's have had great fans, and uh, it's been fun to be a part of the organization all these years and see all the changes. But one constant is a successful team, um, a lot of people who really enjoy their Oakland athletics, and I think that's one of the special things about it. Do you feel like your guys are finally getting their due? You're always going to get your due because you're around the team. But bringing these guys back the past couple of years, do you think these teams are finally getting their due? I think one of the most important things of what the current ownership is doing, and not to say you know the Haas family didn't do it or wouldn't have done it, but to see, uh, the, first of all, the Hall of Fame last year, the inductees, the five in Cooperstown, and then Charlie Finley and Dave Stewart, he should be in the Hall of Fame. He should have his number retired at the Coliseum, but he's not in Cooperstown. But I think what the A's are doing and, and having the reunions and bringing guys back and getting guys involved, uh, Ricky Henderson uh, is a special assistant, Raleigh Finger special assistant. So you're, you've got a couple of the eras of the 70s and, and the 80s with Ricky and Raleigh, of course, in the 70s. But to see Captain Sal come back, see Blue Moon Odom and Campy, like you mentioned, and Vita Blue, see the guys around. We see Reggie uh, when the Yankees come into town, you know, 
be what it may, Reggie was a great player. Mr. October, whether it was with the A's or the Yankees. But, uh, you know, it, it is great to see. And I, I think it's a credit to the organization, a credit to Bob Melvin, because Bob wants these players around because Bob Melvin knows the history of the athletics. It's been a great history. And to have some of those players come back just so the players currently can say, Who's that? Oh, that's Sal Bando. That's Campy Campaneras or whomever it might be. Uh, and you look at the history, and Bob is very, very quick to point out. What Bob Melvin did uh, a couple years ago when there was a reunion, he had the red carpet, and he had his current team lined up to where, as we walked out, shook hands. And I had players who told me they had never, ever experienced that before. And I said it's because of the skipper, Bob Melvin. He wears six because of Sal Bando, but he also respects the history of the game and especially the history of this franchise. Yeah, as a Bay Area kid growing up, he got to see it. And I know he was also uh, very close. I think his godfather was the uh, doctor or something like that for the Golden State Warriors. So it was a great time in the 70s for Oakland sports because you had the Raiders winning, you had the Warriors winning with Rick Barry, and then, of course, what you guys were doing. Well, it was, and and there's been a lot of talk about that period of time and uh, documentaries done but you know it, it was a period of time Tony that I don't think will be matched again because number one free agency you can't really keep a team together and if you do it's going to cost you a fortune cost you a lot of money to keep the team together and you have to have the revenue and I know a lot of fans say well the A's trade this guy and you develop them but but the bottom line I don't know that the A's organization if they made the money make the money they're going to spend the money they're going to keep the players and that's why a new stadium is going to be important if they can get that because they'll have cost certainty know what kind of revenue is going to be coming in. And they're going to be signing these players, keeping the players for a long time. But but the 70s, as you mentioned, with the success of all the franchises, uh, the unfortunate thing, because the earthquake in 89, the last celebration before the Warriors finally won at the Coliseum or the arena was the 74 World Championship. That was the last celebration we had in Oakland because the Warriors won on the road and the other teams had never had not won. So uh, that was a long span of time before you're able to celebrate the championships. But but 74, playing the Dodgers, and Charlie Pride was in to sing the anthem. And I'll never forget, before Game 5 of the World Series against the Dodgers, Charlie Finley said, we've got to have a meeting. So Frank Sinchak, the equipment manager, cleared everybody out. And Charlie Finley said to Charlie Pride, you can stay. We said, what are you doing? What, what, you know, nobody stays in this meeting. We think it's going to be a great meeting. But Charlie Finley said, all right, guys, when we win tonight, we're going to meet downtown Oakland, and we're going to have a parade in downtown. And I never looked, I never forget the look on Charlie Pride's face when he said, who does this guy think he is? He's predicting a world championship. You're only, you know, three games won. You haven't won the final game. The A's won. We had the parade. Charlie Pride to this day, probably thinking, this is the most brilliant man I've ever seen in my life to have a meeting and tell the players what to do tomorrow after a game that has not even been played yet. And sure enough, ended up winning the game with the, the great relay. How about the relay by Reggie Jackson, Dick Green, to Sal Bando to get Billy Buckner going for a triple. And do you know, Townie, I've interviewed Reggie. I said, in your great career, what stands out as the best memory you had? He talked about the play, that play in the 74 World Series in Game 5. He said, I knew when I threw the ball where Dick Green was, and I knew that Dick Green was going to throw the ball. I mean, he kind of spun and threw with his back to the infield, threw to Sal Bando to get the out. But here's one of the greatest offensive players in the history of the game the greatest Mr. October ever on the big stage, yet he talks about a defensive play as the play that stands out the most. That's how great those teams were, that it were, they were the little things, the defensive plays. I mean, we had great pitching. We had a great bullpen. We had a great offense. Three to two, two to one. It's like Catfish would say, 
to the guys, I only need two today. All right, we'll get you two. And he went two to one or two to nothing. But, I mean, that's how great they were. They knew how to win. The teams knew how to win. I was fortunate to be a part of two of those three and to be a part of those teams that were successful to the point that we came to the park every day, Tony. We knew we were going to win. That's pretty spectacular. Well, that's our first edition of Green and Gold History with Ray Fossey here on A's Cast. And uh, next time we see you, because you won't be in Japan with us, <laughs> but the next time we see you will be the Bay Bridge Series. And we're going to do this We're going to do this a couple times each month and just breaking down the history of this glorious franchise. It's been a great one. I always look forward to it. You do a great job. And just get your sleep so that when you come back, we're ready to go. The face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 